teaching for this evening comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. And this is God's word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it was those of faith who were the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we come back to, again, to the book of Galatians tonight, where um, even though we read uh, verses 1 through 14, we're, we're just going to look at um, the first five verses tonight. And I hope to um, help you see why in just a moment. I think these are verses that uh, are, to some extent, easy to just rush right past, but I want to camp out with you here for a moment because uh, I think they teach us something that uh, is absolutely crucial to understanding Christianity and in particular what it means to live the Christian life as a follower of Jesus. And what we've been saying week after week is that this letter to the uh, church in, churches in Galatia is a letter about freedom. It's a letter about gospel freedom. And you might have picked up that I haven't tried to define that yet, and that's, that's intentional, because I want that to unfold for us as we work our way through the book. But as we come to the passage we're going to look at tonight, we get our first real substantial glimpse at what gospel freedom is all about. And when Paul writes this letter, uh, he, he's written it to these churches because they've lost their way. Uh, at the very earliest parts of this, this book, Paul is astounded at what they're doing. They've been uh, allured away by uh, others who are saying that Paul's gospel isn't really the full gospel or the true gospel. And instead of holding fast to what Paul had taught them, uh, which we looked at uh, last week when Paul wrote, uh, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. They had begun to wander from that. And they started to believe that Paul's gospel needed some help. That it was perhaps fine as far as it went, but 
obedience to various Old Testament laws and practices were also necessary to complete this this gospel that Paul was preaching. And so when we come to chapter 3, Paul, he begins with a series of rather penetrating questions. This is the second time that he's addressed directly the uh, churches in Galatia. And if you look in verses 2 and 3, the most important questions that get us into the passage the quickest, what we read there is he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So implied in Paul's question here is a truth about the gospel without which you will never understand it or enjoy it or experience the freedom that Paul is trying to put in front of us. And it's this truth that goes like this. The way you begin the Christian life is also how you continue in the Christian life. That is, through faith in Christ. That the way you begin is the way you continue in the Christian life. It doesn't change. From beginning to end, life in Christ is by faith alone. And so to put it another way, uh, the gospel, it not only saves you, it also transforms you. It doesn't just put you in a right relationship to God, it also conforms you to the very image of God, to Jesus Christ himself. And so one of the greatest enemies of the gospel that we always have to be on guard against is thinking that we begin by faith, but then we we live by our own efforts. I once had it described to me like this, that to use Paul's language about justification to be justified, that sometimes folks can present the gospel, or you might even begin to think about it as, yeah... The gospel is really justification by faith plus a bunch of good advice. And it's up to you to make good on that good advice. And Paul is here to tell us that could not be further from the truth. And so what Paul's telling us in these questions that he's addressing to the churches in Galatia is simply that you never graduate from the gospel. You never leave it behind And so, through this passage, these first five verses of chapter 3, Paul is essentially telling us that we must always go back to the basics of the gospel. And so, let's pause for a minute and think about where you are tonight. Perhaps you're here and you're consumed by guilt, or you're paralyzed by insecurity, or overwhelmed and exhausted by failure. And as a result, you find yourself thinking, uh, more often than not perhaps, that the gospel, it just isn't all it's cracked up to be. If I'm really honest, it just doesn't work for me. And you might even find yourself in this position of thinking, you know, um, I actually do believe it. I can't walk away from it. But I have to say, if this is it... Um, that's not very encouraging. It, it's true, but it just doesn't seem to connect with me and the things I'm facing. And 
If that's you, then I think what Paul would say to you is let's, let's go back to square one. Let's go back to the, to the basics, to the beginning, and see what we discover. And even perhaps discover what we've forgotten or we've, we've even missed. So what I want to do tonight is look at this passage in just under two points by asking two questions. The first is, why do we need to go back to the basics of the gospel again and again? And then the second, how do we go back to the gospel in a way that keeps us coming back to it? That actually can, can address this sense of disconnect or this gap, perhaps, between what you say you believe and your actual experience of it. So first, let's look at why. Why do we need to go back to the basics of the gospel again and again? And the answer to that is because without it, there are two powerful influences which will either mute or distort this gospel. Look here with me in, in, verse, uh, cha- in chapter 3, verse 1, and also verse 3. You'll notice here, Paul begins, and he, ref- he says right away, Oh, foolish Galatians. And he says the same thing again in verse 3. He says, are you so foolish? He's obviously very frustrated and disappointed in these folks that he has proclaimed the gospel to, and he's seen them embrace this gospel, and now they're turning from it. Now, for Paul to, to call them fools is a pretty strong, pretty strong word. But it's important for us to notice here that when he uses that term, he is actually referring to not a lack of understanding. He is referring to a lack of understanding, not intelligence. He's not saying that, that the folks in Galatia were stupid. What he's saying is, you, you've, you don't understand. You've yet to grasp the dimensions and the riches of this gospel. It's not that you're not able to or that you um, are, are unintelligent. It's that you need to come back to this. And how does this mute the gospel for us? How does it turn the volume down? I think the way it turns the volume down and how, why Paul refers to and calls them uh, fools or says, how could you be so foolish, is that if we follow Paul's use of the word that It's about a lack of understanding, not intelligence. Paul is essentially saying, you're living according to your own estimation of things. You think the way you add up life and the way you have construed the way God works and how you relate to him is more true than what God says. In other words, it's a way in which we rely on our own ways of making sense of things rather than considering or putting them to to the test to what the gospel actually is. So the first reason we have to uh, go back to the the gospel again and again is because of our own folly. But the second one is the plausible appeals of others. Look also in verse 1 where Paul says, who has bewitched you? Earlier in chapter 1, Paul is having to speak out against others who are proclaiming a gospel different than his. And in this case, what I want you to think about is that they've been tricked. They've been persuaded. 
There, there is another better way. That there is a good life that is out there that is different than, or even in addition to, this good news that Paul has been preaching. It's outside pressure. The opinions of others, whether real, things people have actually said to you, or imagined, things that uh, just circulate on repeat in your mind. And they are demands, things to live up to, expectations of others. These are what Paul calls earlier in chapter 1, people-pleasing. And so for Paul, when he addresses directly the folks in Galatia, the two things that he is calling out is their own folly and then the appeals of others that cut across the grain, that lead to a distorted gospel, that lead you and I to think there, there is actually a way other than trusting in Christ alone for me to be rescued, for me to be fulfilled, to live the life that I most long for. And so when you take these two together, I think they often do result in an internal murmur. The gospel just doesn't connect. It doesn't work. Uh, I might believe it, but it doesn't seem to make much difference. But notice what Paul says about this. In verse 1 again, he says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's he saying there in this context? What Paul is telling us is that the problem isn't with the gospel. The problem is with us. What Paul is telling us in in reflecting on his time with these churches in Galatia, he's saying the gospel has been clearly, vividly explained and portrayed to you. When he says Christ crucified for Paul... It's often the case that crucified here is his one-word summary, the doorway into all of who Jesus was, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Everything about him is accessed through the cross. And Paul is here saying this gospel was clearly portrayed, clearly proclaimed, clearly taught, and I even saw it take root in your lives. I saw you believe what you heard. And so now, are you, can, now are you thinking you can live the Christian life, you can follow Jesus in your own strength? Why would you think that? You've heard about this Jesus and this gospel. Paul is saying, look, the problem isn't with the clarity of the gospel, or for us even, the problem isn't with the clarity of, of the scriptures. The problem with, is with our own foolishness, our own self-deception, our own propensity to listen to one another even, and as a result, think there must be a better way. So Paul here, not only does he tell us why we need this, he actually gets at a deep root here. But what's the problem here? Why do we do this? Why do we tend to begin to look at this good news and and critique it and think, yeah, this just just doesn't connect. It doesn't work. And I think we get the answer in verse 3. 
when Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Or this, that's how the English Standard Version translates that. In the in New International Version, in verse 3, it says, are you now trying to gain your goal by human effort? The word there translated perfected can also mean completed. Here's what Paul is trying to get us to think about. He is, he's, he's putting in front of us a very important question that is, goes to the very heart, the very center of our human problem. That at the core of our beings, left to ourselves, we are constantly striving to perfect ourselves. We talked about this a little bit last week. The default of the human heart is to want to justify your existence. Is to defend yourself. Is to stake your claim. Is to build your identity on your performance. It goes, it cuts across every fiber of our being to have to say, I cannot do that. I'm incapable of building my own identity that could actually last. And the more I try and the harder I work, the more fragile it becomes. How does this happen to us? Well, if we take a cue here from what Paul seems to be asking, it happens by forgetting the gospel, that it opens up a whole new way of living life, that to believe in Jesus means that we no longer find life in the law, in, in God, even God's law, we no longer find life in the flesh, in our own performance, in our competencies, in our abilities. We find it through receiving the Spirit, God's Spirit, by believing the gospel. Believing the gospel, then for Paul, means abandoning every attempt to rescue yourself. How do you see that here? Well, notice how Paul contrasts In verse 2, the spirit with works of the law. And then he contrasts, uh, he also contrasts uh, works of the law with hearing and faith. Paul is here trying to show you there are only two ways to live. You can either live by your own performance and your own effort, or you can live by the spirit through faith. Those are the only two options. And so that's why we need to go back to the gospel again and again. Is that our own folly and the appeals of others, however well-intended, ultimately expose our need to prove ourselves. And it never works. It will ultimately fail. And so now I think we're ready to look at how do we get back to the basics Paul's going to help us do this actually throughout the rest of chapter 3 and 4 by looking at Scripture and appealing to Scripture in the Old Testament as well as his own uh, ministry in, in a variety of ways. But what you wanna, I want you to notice here is he begins to deconstruct what's happening in these churches by appeal, appealing to their own experience. When they became Christians, when, as he says in verse 2, when you received the Spirit the way in which they began the Christian life. So then how do, how do we go back then to these basics with any hope of things changing? 
First, what I want you to, to think about for a moment is that we need to highlight two truths that are both true at the very same time, and they have to be kept together. Otherwise, we will distort the gospel. But here, here's the thing, that these two truths, for many of us, uh, are very difficult to keep together. And in fact, if, if, if um, you read very much about how people think about the gospel today, uh, you'll have uh, camps who represent both sides of these two truths. And the first truth is this, that really what you most need is you most need is you need to believe the gospel more. That's one truth that is absolutely true. That yes, you, you need to believe the gospel more. You need to bask in the free grace of God. That there's absolutely nothing you could do to save yourself. That God has done everything for you in Jesus. And it's there for the taking through faith in Christ. You need to believe the gospel more. But if, if that's the extent of our understanding of the gospel, here's what might happen to you. You may experience an ever-growing discomfort. And you might begin to ask yourself, if, if the gospel is true, why isn't it changing me? How do I know I believed enough? You see, left, if, that's, if that is the extent of your, God, of, of your understanding of the gospel, you, you need to believe the gospel more. You will, at the end of the day, be left looking back at yourself and the strength of your belief. That's not good news. Well, what's the second truth that we have to hold on to along with, yes, we need to believe the gospel more, is a second truth is you need to follow Jesus harder. Now, some who would disagree with that first truth or think it can be overemphasized or it needs to be downplayed some will often emphasize, you know, what we really need is people to be more committed, more faithful, more willing to bear the cost of following Jesus. And that is also true. You and I need to follow Jesus harder. If we don't hold on to that truth, we will have a hard time making sense of verses like this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See, Jesus at the very time, he says things like that, and he also says, but I came to seek and to save sinners. See, if the extent of your understanding of the gospel is uh, you need to follow Jesus harder, then you may experience an ever-increasing sense of exhaustion and a dwindling sense of assurance. Because if, you're, if your understanding of of the gospel is following Jesus as hard as you can, you will never succeed. You will always be met with your own selfishness. You will always be met with how far you fall short in following him. So what are we supposed to do? How do we hold these two truths together? That yes, we, we need to believe the gospel more. And yes, we need to follow Jesus harder, both at the very same time. How do we hold those together? Well, first, 
what I want you to see is in verse 2 and verse 3, and the first time in, in this letter, Paul mentions the Spirit. And for Paul here in verse 2, when he says, did you receive the Spirit? To stop right there. For Paul to receive the Spirit is to become a Christian. It's not an add-on. It's not something that comes later after another kind of experience. He's not talking about gifts of the Spirit here. He is talking about the new birth, being born from above. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit renewing you, giving you a new heart, taking your heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. He's talking about new life. That's what it is to receive the Spirit. But I think what we need to at least acknowledge is that when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit, we don't really have categories that make it a bit more straightforward like we do when we talk about God as Father and Son. You know, we all have a category, some category of a parent. And so to talk about God as Father, while he is unlike any other father, we still have some idea of what that means. Or we also all have some concept or category of of a child, a son or daughter. And so when we read in the Bible that Jesus is God's Son, that Jesus is the Son of God, we have some idea of what that's talking about. Well, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's far more mystery. There's far more that we don't know. It's not quite as tangible. And the reason I bring that up is because for Paul, receiving the Spirit is... His summary for what it means to become a Christian, this is super important. It's something we need to dive into and get to know. We need to get to know the Holy Spirit. And why is that? Here's the reason. And it is this, this is the reason why and how we can hold together believing the gospel, trusting in Christ and resting in him and his grace and following him, obeying him, is that it's the Spirit is the one by whom Jesus unites us to himself. The most important role of the Holy Spirit in all of the scriptures is uniting you to Jesus, connecting you to him. Uh, An older theologian, John Calvin, he he put it like this, the Holy Spirit is the bond by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits by which Christ effectually unites us to himself, the root and seed of heavenly life in us. And therefore, how do we, what does it mean to go back to the basics of the gospel? In a word, it means to delight in your union with Christ. To delight in and to get to know what does it mean that you, through faith, by the Spirit, are united to him. That who he is, in all that he is, you are connected to. What does that mean? Well, here, you know, Paul assumes uh, that his readers that he's writing to know what he's referring to. He doesn't go into detail when he says, uh, did you receive the Spirit or did you begin with the Spirit? 
He gives some hint at what, how the Spirit has been worked in their midst in verse 5. So what does it mean? What would it look like to receive the Spirit? Thankfully, Paul actually gives us his own experience, which we looked at a little bit last week. In chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, listen to what he says. He says, Through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to Christ, or but live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, those two verses are just soaked in union with Christ. And I want to try to show you two, two ways for you to always come back to the gospel. No matter how you're doing, what you're hearing, what you're thinking, or how you're feeling. And the first one is this. There are two key ingredients for understanding our union with Christ. The first one is you are in Christ. When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, this means that Christ represents you. Every part of his life now has significance for you. The simplest way I know to say it is that you're covered by him. He represents you. His identity is your identity. His performance is your performance. His grief and sorrow are your grief and sorrow. His judgment on the cross is your judgment on the cross. His resurrection is your resurrection. His love for sinners is your love for sinners. Everything about Jesus is now yours in Christ. He represents you. He covers you. His righteousness clothes you. So you are in Christ. But then, not only that, Christ is in you. Listen to how Paul puts it here. Again, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This means that Christ, by his spirit, lives in you. Think about this for a moment. When Jesus was talking to his disciples a night when he was betrayed and said that he had to leave them, and they were like, what are you talking about? How could it be? And he actually says, it would be better for me to leave you. Imagine how his disciples must have felt. How on earth, for them, would it have been better for Jesus to leave them? Well, the reason is, it's by no, it would definitely have been fantastic to have Jesus right next to you, to be able to walk around with him. But why did Jesus have to leave? Because he had something better for you and for them. He wanted to live in you. And it was only by him leaving and dying and rising again and pouring out his spirit on all nations, tribes, and tongues that he would actually take up residence in your life so that his life would be wedded to your life. You see, this means that now when you read things in the Bible, like love your neighbor, you never do that alone. You never do that by mustering up your own willpower. When your spouse is infuriating you, or your children are exasperating you, or your parents are just 
way too annoying to deal with. Or your roommate will not do what they're supposed to do. And you are called to love them. What do you need to say to yourself? What do you need to remember? Christ is in me. The very power of Jesus Christ lives in me. So loving those who are hard to love is not about me mustering up the willpower. It's about me drawing on Jesus by faith, trusting in him, asking him for help, relying on him. Now, let me give you just two examples, two illustrations to try to, to uh, help you think about what does this mean to be that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. I, I'm very much helped by another pastor. He's in L.A. Uh, his name is Rankin Wilborn. And in talking about union with Christ, he gives two illustrations that I think help to uh, drive this home. And then we'll, we'll, land, we'll land this plane. What, is it, what does it mean? What is it, how, how can we talk about to be in Christ? He tells a story of a friend of his who actually was uh, Mickey Mouse in Disneyland, dressed up in the costume. And he, so he, he tells the story. He says, I have a friend who used to be Mickey Mouse. She was the person inside the costume at Disneyland. Reflecting on her time in Mickey, she said, Growing up, I thrived on behavior modification. I thought, if I'm good, I'll be loved. If I'm bad, I'll be rejected. I learned to wear a mask, not to show what was really going on. My core beliefs were that I was not worthy, accepted, or loved. So I would clamor and manufacture ways to elicit the positive responses I wanted from people. When I put on Mickey's costume, I got the positive response times a hundred. Then he goes on to say, she felt safe and loved, covered in Mickey's righteousness. But she also gained a new sense of what it means to be in Christ. This is another way to picture what it means for you to be in Christ. You are completely safe, hidden in him. He represents you before the Father. He covers you, your sin, your shame, your weakness. But he covers you in a very real way, not as a contemporary fiction. Being in Mickey or any other mask we hide behind is to masquerade in a false identity. But being in Christ is to discover our true God-given identity. You are alive in him, moving with him through this world, clothed in all his benefits and blessings. You are in Christ. That's to be in Christ. Now, what does it look like for Christ to be in you? What this means is that Christ's power and life, they're now dwelling in you. And therefore, Paul, in Ephesians 4, what he says there is, We are to grow up in Christ. And he tells this story. Imagine a little boy wearing his father's shirt. He is already fully clothed, you could say. But he's still just a little boy. He'll have to grow up into this new covering until it fits him. In the same way, we are already completely clothed in Christ and his righteousness. But life in Christ is one of growing up into this new reality until it fits us. You are not striving to attain it. You are striving to lay hold of what is already yours. You are growing up into it. 
See, when Paul, in these questions, he's getting us to think about, you never leave the gospel behind. You must come back to it again and again, which is to say, to discover and delight in your union with Christ. This is gospel freedom. This is Paul's answer to gospel freedom, not just becoming an idea for you, but a lived experience. We experience it in our union with Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to work our way through this book, that you would help us to come back again and again to what Paul speaks about his own experience, that he no longer lives, but the life he now lives, he lives by faith in you, that you live in him by the power of your spirit. And that is true for everyone who by faith trusts in Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to get to know and delight in and move around in our union with Jesus, that we are in him and that he is in us and there is freedom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.